1: That's BlueNile.com
2: Coming
3: up on this episode of White Wine Question Time
2: Standing in that queue in Popeido really was a young girl who just thought if I get to meet Simon Cowell today and I can go home and tell my mates in the pub that Simon Cowell rejected me and said no to me I'm going to dine out in this for months to come Initially I was like oh my God, that is the best lookalike I've ever seen. Like, Popeiro have went really over the top. And then the closer he got, I was like, oh, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, it's Elton John. Dominic Mohan and The Sun had written this article saying, Look, you know, can she sing? Yeah. Is she talented? I suppose so. But come on, lads, you just wouldn't, would you? And then it was a question of the sexualisation of this 23-year-old wee girl who all I was asking the world was, do you think I can sing? All of that stuff was just fair game. It was rife. Everyone was going to do it. You put yourself on telly. You deal with the consequences of it, which would have been fine if I was someone that was even a tiny bit equipped to deal with that. But I wasn't, I for singing contest.
3: Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is a woman I first met 20 years ago in a queue to audition for the second series of Pop Idol in Glasgow. It was 2003. Will Young had won the first series, beating Gareth Gates in a nail-biting live final, and the country had fallen in love with Pop Idol. So the appetite for a second season, and more importantly, a second idol, was, well, voracious. I was working as the host of Pop Idol's spin-off sister show, Pop Idol Extra, and I followed her from queuing hopeful all the way to becoming Idol's second winner, bagging millions of votes on the night and leaving the show sharing a manager with Annie Lennox and with Simon Cowell as her A&R man. Not only could she sing, she could shine. Her natural quick humour and resilience in the face of so much judgement surrounding her shape made the nation fall under her spell. More people voted for her to win Pop Idol than had voted at the general election and her debut single, All This Time, went straight in at number one. So that was 20 years ago and so much has happened since, as we're about to hear. She's now 43, lives and works in Scotland, hosting her own radio show on Radio Scotland, appears on Radio 4's Loose Ends, has performed her one-woman show at the Edinburgh Fringe for 10 years and is now happily married to Geoff, with whom she shares two beautiful young sons. I cannot wait to catch up with her, so let's dial her in. It's Michelle McManus. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to you.
2: Good. Hello, my darling. This is so exciting. Isn't it lovely to talk to you? Yeah, it is. It's really lovely.
3: I should explain we reconnected very recently you slid into my DMs (laughs) I certainly did I mean we've always chatted back and forth on social media we've kept in touch and for a very long time after you won the show we spent a lot of time together as as friends in a a social group you know helping you bed into your new life in London as a megastar um but let's let's rewind to a couple of months back. You slipped into my DMs and you said,
2: Can we have a chat? I did because what had happened was, because this year's my twentieth anniversary, I went in Pope Idol, which is in I can't itself it. I know I can't believe it either. So we sat down with the BBC and they were like, it's gonna be a mixture of archive, um, looking back, looking forward. Um, do you have a list of people that you would like to speak to at that time? And genuinely and I'm not just saying it because we're doing the podcast, I was like, it needs to be Kate Thornton because if it wasn't for Kate, I don't know what I would have done in London because you, and I don't even know if you were aware of it at the time because you were, and you still are, you know, but you were such a mega star and you were hosting the show and we were spending so much time together. So to us, you were like, oh my God, here comes Kate Thornton. Like it never got oh, here comes Kate, because you were always Kate Thornton. We full-named was you. like, then. really? Oh, you were always Kate Thornton. Really? We were, like, oh, no, coolest. I thought it was one of the gang. Oh, no, you were, but you were, like, the superstar of one of the gang because we were just, like, we. you would chat to us, like, I'm your mate, and then you'd be like, okay, good to go. And then you would just start presenting, and then we were just watching you, and, all, and then you kind of did this really lovely thing where you said, look, babe, do you know where you're going to be staying when you move to London? Have you got any friends down here? And I was like, nope, nope, nope. I don't know anything. And you said, I will tell you what, you're going to move to South London and you're going to come with me and I'm going to take care of you. And you, that's exactly what you did for me. And I don't know what I'd have done in those first few months in London without that community you gave me in the South Side, you know, over in the South of London and that support. And I was 23, you know, I didn't know anyone. And you allowed me to to make that transition.
3: God you know what I remember is that yeah we spent a huge amount of time together right because we were locked in the yeah. in the idol bubble and it was a different bubble this time around for me because the first pop idol nobody you know we were just growing and going through it by the second season it was massive so that bubble really was quite insulated mm-hmm. and I knew what you were stepping into because I'd seen what had happened to Will and Gareth and God rest his soul Darius mm-hmm. the year before and I think, yeah, I mean, I always felt like I, I really did want to offer a, a duty of care as as your friend on set. Like, I wanted to be a friend on set for everybody. That was really important. And then we would just spend, I mean, five, six days a week together? Yeah. I mean, I was recording 12 hours of output with you guys with, oh, was frankly, so much. no, no scripts. Like they, We no, would no. just make it up on the spot. <laughs> on IT, it was the first show ITV2 had ever done like that, the first spin-off show. And, you know, like, I remember we'd come into work and they'd go, oh, my God, have you seen the ratings? I'd be like, oh, no, they're terrible. This was on the first season. They're like, are you kidding? Like, so anyway, that's what I remember about that time. And I'd seen what had happened to Will and Gareth. And I just, I think I felt very protective, as did a lot of the crew on the show, like Claire Horton, who was the exec producer then. I love
2: Claire. I think you're right because you maybe had seen what happened in the first season and it was such a huge show at the time and people forget it was a time before social media and stuff which actually mm. I'm kind of glad I'm grateful that we didn't have social media at that point now knowing what I know now but if it wasn't oh, yeah. for you yeah can you imagine Mike right? can you imagine me dealing done with a weight thing and being on social media I, I don't think my mental health would have took it but what you guys created and that duty of care which actually wasn't really your job to to do but you did it anyway even though you had all this other stuff going on like you had like these the most famous mates coming in the studio like one day you're like oh yeah ricky gervais coming in and you know such yeah. and, stuff. and i'm like oh my god Kate, who do you don't know because of your, your background <laughs> matches. and i'm like oh my god you're you're like a dress book must be wild you know because all these like you were just like bringing famous people in right left and center because they were your mates you know that was the power you had on the show
3: But also they wanted to be there because the show was that show, you know, it was the show that everybody wanted to be on. It was, Mm -hmm. it was the appointment to view. It truly was. And you say it wasn't our job, but do you know what? I think any decent human being would do the same. It's not about a job. It's about just, and you do the same, by the way. I know that in a heartbeat. And I got to know your mum and dad as well. So by the time it looked like you were, you know, definitely going to get a career out of this before you'd even won, um, I could see like your mum and dad thinking, God, is she going to be all right? And there were all manner of things being reported about you that as a parent, as you and I most definitely understand now, must have been really hard. And you're hundreds of miles away. And, you know, mostly the only time they saw you during that time was literally on the side of stage in the idol studios because it was so all-consuming, but now you're making a doc about it twenty years on, so it must be nuts going back. Because that's so. Listen, long story short, that's why you slid into my DM. She said, "I'm making a documentary. I'd love you to be featured. Will you?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure." And then it was it was so emotional seeing you. And yeah, we cried. We was, <laughs> I
2: talked a, I talked a lot to the, I talked a lot about it to the crew afterwards because we we'd filmed quite a lot of the doc before we kind of got to you in London. Mm-hmm. and a lot of this documentary, I mean, the majority of this documentary is just so wholly positive, right, because Popper will change my life for the better there's no question about that but some of it has been really triggering if I'm honest Kate, to go back and look at the press at that time and just to think of me now 20 years on as this wee girl at 23 and thinking, oh god that, that was such a shame actually with some of the things that happened, but apart from that it has been kind of really positive, but there was something happened to me when I saw you that day because I just couldn't stop crying because I just I was just overcome and I think I was overcome by all these emotions mainly that I was also safe and a really safe pair of hands with you because I, that's always the way that you made me feel and I think because I've watched you and I feel like I've, I've never lost con- contact with you because of social media and I'm always looking at all the amazing things that you're doing online and you like my stuff and I like your stuff and me, I've always felt there was you that connection and yeah absolutely but to physically see you in the flesh and by because you haven't aged in 20 years I think that threw Bloody me as yeah. well I was like she must have a painting rotting somewhere in a bloody <laughs> a loft on a basement somewhere because she's not here. But I think because you looked the exact same, you sounded the exact same, you were as warm as you were. It kind of catapulted me back to that time. I was like, oh, it's Kate, and that's just the way I felt. And I just couldn't stop crying, as as you know. I was a, a bubbling wreck. Well, so
3: was I, right alongside you. <laughs> that's we were all in the same. Bubble yeah. experience and it was brilliant and i and I don't know what reality shows went on to become much beyond that because I stopped working on them a couple of years later um but I know that Idol was um you know I can look you in the eye and said you know, I, as far as I know, everybody did everything they could to look after you and make sure Absolutely. that you had the best experience possible, despite yeah. what was going on. And by everybody, I mean the production team. I'm not talking about the judges yeah. or anybody else outside of that. And oh, the um, production
2: team! I've still got the picture up on my wall of all the production team because okay. that picture means yeah, it was like taken I don't know if you remember it. You you're in it too, and it's like it was the last picture taken of me before I won. So it was taken like five ten minutes before we went on air. And there is, like, a hundred and odd strong crew in this picture. Everyone, I can still name everyone in that picture, you know? And it's, like, um, it, it, you can look in all of eyes. I mean, the only person that's missing, Simon Cowell, obviously, because he was never early. Do you remember he was always in it, <laughs> so like... like so he was having a bath or something. The titles were rolling. Yeah, the <laughs> titles were rolling. And he's, like, putting out the mental ciggy before he just walks into the studio. And everyone he's, like, calm down, kind know when he was walking in. He's, so he's the only one not in the picture.
3: Apparently his lateness has only got worse with, um, oh. <laughs> with his increased stardom. Um, and But, you know, it's, this isn't just your experience, this doc you're making, because after... You're so bougie, Mish. After you left me, you were going over to Robbie Williams's house, and you'd already gone and chatted to Susan Boyle. So you've got some big names in there. And you and Robbie, right? Because I know he did, like, a, a year, a blink and you miss it year, right, or two, maybe, on X Factor. But what's your connection with him?
2: So my connection with Robbie was for uh, after I after I'd won the show, before we, I got the house because you were helping me find a house in um, over in Clapham South Way. London. I lived London. Yeah. yeah, I lived in Key Key West. Do you remember that hotel that everyone kind of got put Shepherd's up in? Shepherd's Bush. In Key West, yeah, in Shepherd's Bush, and I was like, okay. And Lisa Armstrong at the time was my makeup artist, so Lisa had said, Lisa Armstrong
3: is we should explain was Aunt's girlfriend and then became his wife. And is one of the best makeup artists in the business. She's now the head of and has been the head of makeup on Strictly since it began, pretty much, I'm sure. Um, so you had you were being face painted by one of the masters of the craft and one of the nicest.
2: And one of the nicest. I adore Lisa Armstrong. Lisa and a beautiful girl called Faye and Lindsay uh, Barker were mad. They had they, to the, 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 the clothing for me so it was like we had this little team going on and at least i'd say look babe why are you sitting in that hotel on your own just we are only in cheswick you know just come over to us and do your makeup in ours in the morning because that first three months after winning kate which i'm sure you know was explosive in terms of promo i was in buses up and down the country i was everywhere (laughs) so every day i started off in cheswick getting my hair and makeup done and off we set but Aunt's having like a cup of tea and Dick lives next door and this is all this yeah. is all like normal to everyone but me because I'm like what is happening in my life and for a time Robbie Williams was there and I don't really know why Robbie was there but he was kind of with that and Deck a lot at that period and one day I was just getting my makeup done he just like pulled a chair up a cup of coffee and just started chatting to me telling me how much he loved t- I mean it wasn't specifically me it was just he was obsessed with that format and TV talent sure. shows and he used to get the tapes sent over to to America. And he, at that time, was just like... And I think he subsequently said to me since that point, I think he just saw that I was getting a bit of a battering in the press. And it was kind of 2003, like, Nedworth and all that for him. I think he was going through the same. I mean, the fact that he even puts me in the same sentence as him in terms of how we were feeling as equals in the industry, I'm like, no, no, Robbie. No, no. No, no, no. Like, I don't know how to tell you this, but we are not... But he won't have any... That's the way he talks to me. So for this very short period of time... I was meeting Robbie Williams through Lisa and Ant and Dick and then nothing for 19 years and then 19 years later I'm in the BBC and my producer says to me, Robbie Williams has come into the Oval Hydro and you're interviewing him. Um, He seems to know you and I was like, and I didn't want to say, my producer said, do you know him? And I was just like, um, not, not really Because I didn't want to say yes In case I thought No maybe he's just PR guys just picked me And Robbie doesn't yeah, but have but you always think They're like... going to
3: forget you Don't you You're like No yeah. I do not remember I only, I only sat with him And had my makeup done for a year
2: Yeah Anyway The long and the short of it is He did remember And he was You know For everything that man's been through Like kindness okay, It's just Pouring out of that man and he is just so, he was so incredibly kind to me during that interview, he invited me backstage to his concert in Glasgow I took all my sisters, they lost their mind we were with him for about 45 <laughs> minutes backstage and I kept thinking do you want us to go now and he's like no no babe you're fine, just chatting away and then months and months later when I was I kind of kept in touch with Michael, his man you know, one uh, of his team and Michael had said to me, what are you up to? I said I'm doing this doc, I'm interviewing X, Y and Z he said I think Rob would love to do that and I was like Sorry. And even up until the last minute, he was like, just come to Rob's house in in Holland Park. And I was like, Robbie Williams house. And at the whole time, my director and my team were like, what are we going to do? What's happening? I'm like, I don't know. I don't want to ask any more questions. Let's just go and see what happens. And even up until the very last minute, I thought this is not going to happen. And then, oh, my goodness, it happened. And then so he was he gave us an hour of his time. He was unbelievably kind and generous and just so amazing with his comments about me. We all left the house and were just like, oh, my goodness, did that happen? Did we just sit in Robbie Williams' house? And he then was going off to the one show to promote his documentary. Like, yeah, catch you later, babe. I'm, and then I'm away to Australia on Monday. And that was it. He was so incredibly out of this world. How does that happen?
3: Well, it happens because you happened, you know. You're special, Michelle. That's why, you know, one of the things that, was really evident when we sat down and spoke for the documentary was that i think you've lost sight of how you captured people's hearts and minds and votes by the way um and i wanted if in this episode we could just take a wander back down memory lane together and start to piece and place all of that together because that's kind of what we did on the documentary the documentary is going to be shown on bbc scotland but also bbc iplayer i think it goes out on christmas eve is that right?
2: it's like Christmas night and actually there's no talk about getting out on BBC One because of Aww. all you guys being in it Aww. so not because of me when I said it was my documentary like yeah I'll get on BBC Scotland and now I've got Kate Thornton Robbie Williams Susan Boyle the Loose Women Gang all these people and they're like yeah maybe we should consider BBC One and I'm like yeah that, that sounds great to me because of all these amazing people that are in the document too so
3: three questions coming your way my friend and the first one I just want to pick up where we first met and rewind slightly from there. So question number one. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about the girl I met in the queue in Glasgow. Who was she? What was her backstory? And most importantly, what were her ambitions?
2: So the girl you met in that queue, God love her. She was 23 years old. I was 23 years old and I had come from this big gorgeous family in the east end of Glasgow it was my mum and my dad and I've got four sisters so it was five girls and we just basically the Nolans. In, yeah we're basically we wish we wanted to be the Nolands growing up right that's <laughs> we, and we did we used to all line up and sing together and all that stuff so we we grew up in this really working class beautiful family big Catholic family hundreds of aunties hundreds of cousins we all lived a stone throw away from each other you know my mum and dad were just you know, we never had a lot, but my dad. The one thing I really remember my childhood is everything was magical. Everything was a huge deal. Halloween was a huge deal. My dad would spend hours clearing out the garden shed and decorating. We'd be duking for apples and all this kind of stuff. Easter was a huge deal. Christmas was huge in our house. Like I think my mum and dad. And there's just there was a lot of magic in my childhood. That's what I remember. I have, I have a lot of happy memories, and I actually feel. Looking back now as a parent, I'm like, oh my goodness, if I can give my boys a tenth of that, because it it really was an unbelievable upbringing. You know, just the way my the kids, just how my mum and dad, you know, drove it home for us that we were a big family and we did everything as a family, and you know, and I I'm so eternally grateful to them for that. So I I was a pretty strong person. I was very comfortable in my own skin you know I was very overweight but I was never at any point made to feel in my family that you have to lose weight. my weight was never discussed I was it was just oh, this is Michelle she's, she's beautiful she can do anything she wants to do but I think I knew in my mind at 23 there was no way I was ever going to be a singer and be famous because of how I looked and because of where I came from so therefore I didn't have this great expectation that anything would happen so I kind of left school and got a job in hospitality and I was Really getting through the ranks in these big kind of five star hotels. And I was sales manager at the Marriott Group at the time for Glasgow, Edinburgh, and Aberdeen. So I had a really good job. And I used to sing on the side. I'd go to karaoke bars. I'd do working men's clubs. You know, I'd have to play my bingo at halftime in the middle of the competition. You know, couldn't breathe a word. It's place in the to bingo. learn
3: your craft, right? Because you've got to work a room that's not there for you. Like they've not come for you, they've come for the pies and the bingo.
2: Oh, my goodness, as was I there for the Pies and the Bingo. But, like, they, <laughs> if they did not like you, if they did not like you, Kate, you knew about it immediately that they did not like you. It was like Phoenix Nights completely in, in these clubs. So standing in that queue in Poppedal really was a young girl who just thought, if I get to meet Simon Cowell today and I can go home and tell my mates in the pub that Simon Cowell rejected me and said no to me, I'm going to dine out in this for months to come. So
3: you were just there for the the anecdote, really. You thought that at best, it was going to be that.
2: Yeah, I never, I could never have allowed, I would never have allowed myself to think that it could have been, because see, really, at that point, there was no one on telly that looked like me, or certainly that I wasn't seeing anyone that looked like me. There was no one that really sounded like me. And so therefore, I just thought, I'm going to go and audition. My granny's there with me. We're a wee trolley and we're sandwiches and everything like that. And we're going to have a lovely day out. And that's all I thought. And genuinely, that's all I thought.
3: See, when I met you, I saw a young woman who was confident, funny, so funny. You radiated. You were, you know, I was drawn to you. You were witty. Um, I loved you and wanted you to do well before I'd even heard you sing. Okay, so you're that sheer force of personality. And that comes from everything you've just described in your childhood. Your weight was never discussed. You were just loved, right? You were confident and comfortable and celebrated by the people that knew you. And that really showed. That really showed. And my great hope is that this this experience that came next has not taken that away from you.
2: It it hasn't, but I think what it allowed, because of the way I was going to raise them, because of how comfortable I feel. I never wanted to be famous. I didn't want any more. I felt I felt very content from a young age. Like I never ever wanted the fame. So I never it wasn't something like I was hungry for it. I was never hungry for it. I just wanted to have an experience that was it I could never have foreseen past that so I think because I never set myself up to fail I just was like well, oh, I'll just go and like this will be great and I'll always be able to tell people about that time that I met some famous people in telly and got to sing in front of them and that was it that's that's genuinely all it was and I, I'm grateful for that because if I think I if I'd went really wanting it it might have been a different experience and I never did want it
3: but boy, did you get it. Jeez. So you go and we're do that not. first audition. You were quite surprised to be put through. I remember that. You're
2: like, wow. It was all very new and again, very terrifying and very exciting in equal measures. But again, I was just down for the weekend and I was going home. You know, I wasn't, I was never going to get through. And it was always just moment by moment, experience by experience. It was, there was never a long game for me ever. Never in a million years. My goodness. So that
3: was the heats where we decide who go through to the live finals and it was so much fun to be a part of for me um, at that time because I just I don't know I'd already had one go around the lap uh, one lap uh, I suppose in in the previous year so I kind of knew some of what was coming Mm -hmm. how did you how did you handle the pressure and then ultimately the attention that came with it because week by week your profile grew and then suddenly within literally a handful of weeks you are just Michelle from Pop Idol, right? You're a bit like Kylie. Like People didn't have surnames. It was Will, <laughs> Gareth, Darius the year before. It was Sam, Mark, Michelle in your year. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's that quick in terms of the fast track to fame.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was... It was the. again, I feel we were really protected because we were we were inserted in that bubble really quick off the mark. So therefore, when I found out I was in there in the live shows in the final ten, which became twelve for the wild card week because they added another two, we were moved to this room, that really posh house near Primrose, like how we were <laughs> living, and it was like I had never seen anything like this in my life. And we were all living in the one house, and Barney and Amelia, or the production guys, were practically living with us. And life was just incredible. We were getting taken out the blacked out cars and going here and going there. And like every week, it was such a positive show. There was never a sob story. You know, one week we're going to Alton Towers. The next week we're going to Love Actually, Love Actually premiere. The next week Elton John's coming to just be in a studio with us, play the piano, and we are all around the piano singing for Elton, which was I insane. I remember that.
3: You almost had kittens that day, didn't you? You were a bit freaked out when Elton John turned up.
2: I mean, oh, yeah, I mean, not as much as, not as much as Chris Hyde I was, because initially I was like, oh, my God, that is the best lookalike I've ever seen. Like, Popeyro have went really over the top. And then the closer he got, I was like, oh, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, it's Elton John. And, you know, it was really funny, because I don't remember this, but the production team told me, because what Elton John had done was, he was then sitting getting interviewed on his own, and they said, who do you think is going to win, Paul And he said, I'll tell you, I think it's going to win, it's going to be, and it went, and it, you know, bleeped out his answer. And at the very, after I won and everything was happening and we were sitting in the room, apparently I said to one of the production guys, can I ask you a question? Who did Elton say was going to win? And they're like, what? And they're like, oh, we'll double check. And she come back, oh yeah, it was you. And they showed me the tape without the bleep. And it was it was me. How did my brain even remember that? For weeks later, I was like, I wonder who, El- I always wondered who Elton had said. And he was so kind about of me in the press afterwards. For years later, Elton John spoke about me and used me as an example of, someone who he thought was going to do really well from the show and and hadn't in terms of their music career and what a shame it was. And he was so, again, he was so kind to remember, you know, my name leaving his lips. And I was just like, oh my goodness, Elton John still knows my name. You know, that was a long time ago, but still. And those things kind of were such a huge, and still are such a huge deal to me because these are mega global mega stars we're talking about you know we're not talking about guys to sing. me no offence and the working men's club this is like El- Elton John it
3: was Elton amazing bloody John
2: it's Elton He's a bloody legend. John so although so the way I dealt with the show Kate was we always had something lovely to do and we're filming with you every other day and everything one day we were filming Halloween stuff you know we're all getting dressed up at the house Aunt and Deck would come on the show and you would have guests on the show and we would have getting to know you you know us revealing a little bit more to the to the viewer and all that kind of stuff so there was so many amazing things happening. But all that noise that was getting bigger and bigger on the outside world, I really wasn't hearing an awful lot. to mm. A lot of it, not, especially not until I get down to the kind of final four and then I was like, oh, okay, this is... And it really ramped up at that point because there was a chance I was going to get in the final. So all of that noise ramped up. But certainly for the first six, seven weeks, it was just like you had won the lottery and you were living your best life and you were in this kind of dreamlike state. It was amazing.
3: I'm so glad it was that for you because I know was... that there was some. I know that the you know that noise seeped in not long after, mm. and that was that was a lot to deal with. But I'm glad that that experience, the one that we could control for you as best we could, was, oh, it was amazing.
2: amazing. It was a good
3: one. Talk me through the night, of the final, because you had gone from being you know the girl that everybody liked and loved, and then it started to get serious, and then you were still there, and then suddenly you we're like, and I think you were the same shit, she might win. Like, she could win. Up until then, it was always deemed, like, pretty boy territory. Not pretty boys, but, you know, handsome young boys that mm-hmm. somebody like Simon Cowell knew, had, you know, exactly what to do with. But the year before, you know, the public had voted against what he thought was a slam dunk. Right. Mm-hmm. Gareth didn't get the majority of the votes. Will did. Both of them, very, by the way, very handsome men. Um, but... But Will was a slightly different artist. And I mm-hmm. think that was ringing in everybody's ears that don't actually think that Sam and Mark have got this in the bag because Michelle's coming up hard on the, on the outside lane, you know. Mm. Did you feel that you were a contender at that point?
2: Never, and never for a minute. So I never thought they would let me <gasps> win. No, but you said something really lovely to me when we were filming. So in my mind at that point, I was like, I'll get to a point, but they'll never let me win. And you said something really lovely, and you said, "But you, Michelle, you must remember." And it's something I've forgotten, Kate. Which I'm, and I'm sad I'd forgotten it for, for 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 all the time that's passed. They never got to decide. It was always the public that got to decide because I'm we're so conditioned now to t- TV talent shows, whether it's Strictly or the vote. Ultimately, all comes down to the judges. The public can vote, but when it gets to the final two, the judges have the final say. It's never down to the public anymore. But at that point. With pop idol, it was one hundred percent down to the public. The judges had no input in on that. So I think in my mind, I was always just thinking they'll find a way. They'll they'll do something. I'll not win. No. See, I knew so-
3: that. I knew there was like you know there was great integrity around the phone vote, in as much as we had to play it completely straight, and only if certain people were privy to it. Um. Uh, that none of us knew who had polled first position, second position, third position, uh, until after the show had been completed, the series had been done. Mm-hmm. So, though you know, I could just see and sense what was building. By the, the last few weeks, suddenly the discussion turned not to your voice but to your size and your shape. That must—that I mean, I I remember it, Michelle, as being difficult. And I'm really sorry that all of that judgment took the shine off such a special experience for you.
2: I think the thing was, I I mean, I was completely aware of who I was as a person. I knew at that point I was a size 20, 22. It wasn't a big shock to me that, you know, why are people thinking I'm really fat? I was overweight and that's there's no denying that. But I think because I had honestly spent my life with people just accepting me who I was, you know, I was never bullied at school or anything. I was so lucky at school that I didn't have to go through what so many of my friends had went through. When you actually think someone like me probably was textbook in terms of of who would get bullied at school. And I wasn't because I always sang and joked with folk and had a great time. So somewhere in the pit of my stomach, I knew this was coming, right? But I'm now answering this question as a 43-year-old woman who is, you know, really strong, secure, in control of her own life. Where I was at 23 years old, and we talk about this brand-new, shiny, out-the-rapper, 23-year-old in London... I did not have a clue how to deal with this. I wasn't mentally equipped for it. I wasn't emotionally able to deal with it. And there's one thing not to be liked, but there's one thing to be absolutely, you know, kind of vilified and, and hated because of how you look. And it really did, and this is no exaggeration, it got to that point. It got to the point where they were debating it in the House of Commons a dj got sacked on air for calling me you know i think it was like i don't know if i can swear on this i'm sure i can i'm not sure it was just like we can't let that fat bastard get to number one again or we can't let that fat bastard it was something like that and they were sacked and it was all over the press and you know you had the likes of like dominic mohan and the sun had written this article saying like you know can she sing yeah is she talented i suppose so but come on lads you just wouldn't would you and then it was a question of whether you would I shouldn't win because you wouldn't want to sleep with me. You know, and just this, that whole the sexualization of this 23-year-old wee girl who all I was asking the world was, do you think I can sing? You know, it was never a question of, do you want to go to bed with me or am I attractive enough or would you be embarrassed in front of your mates to say that you fancy me? But just at the time we were in, in 2003, all of that stuff, and we've been talking about it recently, all of that stuff was just fair game. It was rife. Everyone was going through it. You put yourself on telly, you deal with the consequences of it. Which would have been fine if I was someone that was even a tiny bit equipped to deal with that. But I wasn't, I entered a singing contest.
3: I don't think anybody's equipped for that though, Michelle. Because it's it's so wrong. It's so wrong and it's so unfair. And if you imagine... I mean, yeah, the misogyny of of the way the misogyny. it was reported. And, and, you know, listen, I had shades of that, but nothing nothing on that scale nothing on that scale and I mean I think we can both agree that it wouldn't happen today but the fact that it happened at all is a disgrace and um and that's when when that started to happen I think that's when I really felt so protective towards you I think because I knew you felt so horribly attacked I couldn't stop that none of us could and I when I say I I think everybody in that group felt the same towards you we just wanted to look after you we just wanted to you make did. sure you were okay as best but we I want, could.
2: But I want you, you know, and I know I've kind of said it, you know, at the beginning, I want you to know that you absolutely did that and then some because I don't think I was even aware at the time of what you guys were. I mean, I was aware of how much you were taking care of me, but only now that I reflect and I look back in my life and the place that I'm in and out. And I think it would have been a really different story for me, Kate, if you hadn't done that for me. Because, see, at the end of the day, it wasn't because you didn't like me or the guys didn't like me, but your career at that point, and it still is, it was just you moved from one thing to another. You were so, so busy. So for you then to make the time and go, and no, then no, no, she needs to come with us, you know, we still need to take care of her even though the show is finished. Like, if you hadn't a done that for me at that time, because let me tell you, as much as I had the record label around about me and I had my management company around about me, no one was taking care of me at that point in that respect. You know, that absolute... What I needed was a friend, a community, a number to call that if I needed to go somewhere. So that was really... I think, for for me, surviving those first few months in London, if I hadn't had that, and with Lisa as well, and that little team around about me, I don't know what I would have done. On reflection, looking back now, I'm even surprised that I managed to get through it, even with all that help, because it's like... I don't think... It, you know, it was just a, a crazy thing to happen to someone, mad, and only it only happens to so few people, really. That kind of zero to a hundred, you know, in terms of of being famous.
3: You put your parent hat on now. Would you let your kids go through that?
2: No, Kate. Okay. Okay, I don't even put my I don't even put pictures of my kids on social media. I put one picture of both my boys when they were very first born just because there was there was actual paps outside the hospital, which is insane in Glasgow, right? Because we don't really have paps here. But they all wanted that first picture of my kids because nothing very much happens up here. Not that often anyway. But, Not true. Um, but you know what I mean? It's it was seen as a big deal. But I won't do that to them because I, with social media now, right? It's an amazing place. It can also be like a bit of a moral sewer, yeah, right? Yeah, that's the reason but,
3: I wouldn't do it because I thought, <clears throat> I think if I could guarantee you the team that If I could guarantee our kids the team that you had before the noise seeped in, great. But beyond that, it's beyond everybody's control now. So I think you need to have a little bit of life experience under your belt before you can handle what fame looks like in 2023.
2: If I was going to pop idol now, the woman that I am now, oh my goodness. I mean, it would be a completely different experience. And, you know, in some ways... I'm glad it happened then and I was so innocent and naive to it all because I think knowing what I know now I probably wouldn't last a minute in that environment you know not with you guys in terms of the production but just dealing with the press and all that kind of stuff I wouldn't have lasted, I'd have been like forget it
3: The girl I met in the queue then became a mega star, and I want to talk to you about her.
2: Talk me through the night of the final. So uh yeah, so what had happened was the night of the final came and you guys were all amazing and everything was great, but there was an for me, there was an air of just something wasn't quite right in the studio something wasn't quite right and I felt it and I couldn't really describe it and I still can't describe it but there was just an impending doom in me thinking I don't think if I win this is going to be a great thing and part of me was like I think I just want Mark to win because then it'll be easier for me and you know, because I don't really know what comes next. And I didn't want this part of it to end because this part of it had been so amazing as the show and the bubble that we speak about and all this kind of stuff. And I didn't want to not do this on a Saturday night. I didn't want to not see you. I didn't want to not see all these people in this environment. I wanted it to last just a few more weeks. We, we always want more, right? And then... When I'm on stage with Ant and Dec, and it's funny because I have to question something, Kate, whether I do remember it or whether I remember what I saw now on telly. It's really weird to try and giant...
3: yeah, I get that because I
2: spent so I spent so many years after we the show not thinking about it, not because I wasn't proud of Poppy, I just couldn't really deal with everything that had happened at the time. But I just mm-hmm. remember standing there, and I remember looking out, and no matter where I was, I could always see my dad because he was dressed up in some wild outfit that he wore every week. Yeah, it it was always
3: yeah, he really was, wasn't he? He represented.
2: Oh, it was always a theme in Pop Idol. One week was the Beatles week, then it was Elton John week, it was disco week. And my dad came dressed up. Don't ask me why, because he just thought that would be a great idea. But I remember looking at to my family and I remember just thinking, and I remember, you know, Dex saying, and the winner of Pop Idol 2003 is, and I just remember that moment thinking... It needs to be marked because I don't know what's going to come next. And then he said my name, and you can actually i, I didn't realize then because you see me drop down, like I, I almost—I go to fall, but I kind of pull myself back up again. And and Dex got my arm, and I just remember looking out, and my mum and dad were crying, and they were screaming, and my sisters, and and I looked, and at the same time I could see Pete Waterman just leaving the studio for whatever reason. You know, it might, it, I'm sure, I'm sure, and I know he spoke to you about it, and in, in, in time. In the same sense, but for me, that was agonising to see that because I could specifically so see take very he yeah. had
3: been very vocal about the fact that he didn't think that you had what it took to be the full package, and mm-hmm. this was in a time when looks really mattered in terms of how record companies signed acts. You know, um, there's no way Adele would have been signed back then, for example. No, or wow. Lizzo. Um, yeah, um, but but Pete. I mean, did did it feel cruel to you, Michelle? Cause...
2: it it was a real mixed emotion because I adored Pete Waterman. I grew up with Stockcake and Waterman and that machine and it gave me all of my favourite artists. I mean, I was a gigantic Kylie fan and Rick Astley and Sonia. So even though Pete Pete was never rude to me. Pete always just said, Look, I'm not saying you can't sing, but you're not gonna make it in this industry and unfortunately he was you know, he was absolutely right. I didn't make it in the industry, but at the time he was. He wasn't being nasty. He just wouldn't. He wouldn't let that go week after week. Even if I'd done a good performance, he always had to get that in, and that was fine.
3: But when I think I, he felt, him- I think he felt that there was a a back room tussle going on. Um, oh
2: yeah, and there was. There was I know that between that the Simons.
3: Um, and I'll let speak Pete Pe- speak of that because um, that you know that's kind of you know that's his narrative to share, I guess. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, I think he felt that he was being. Um, the dispenser of tough love that he liked yeah. you very much I know he liked you very much and he loved your voice
2: yeah um, and the thing was I think it was the. Yeah, I think it was just watching him because he pulled his mic off and I'll never forget it because he had this mic and he kind of threw it down and he didn't even wait for me to sing the song now rightly or wrongly Kate he was a professional he probably could have stayed to the end and course. then aired his views afterwards so I'm, so you've got Pete in my eyeline here but my family are kind of up here and I'm watching them all cheering and then I see someone running over to Pete to try and convince him to stay, and he's not staying. And I think that was, you know, that it was so symbolic of the fact that here was me, this was the first reaction of anyone in the professional world of music, and this was their reaction of, you know, this is it, I'm, I'm not even going to allow her to sing her final song, which really cut deep. And I tried to deal with it with shimmer, because I had... I'd wore that Mrs. Waterman t-shirt at the at the big, next big life thing I did and tried to make a joke of it. Oh, he really loves me, really. But it did cut really deep because I, you know, he was someone I had really, and still do, greatly. My doesn't change how I feel about Stock Kicking Waterman. You know, the guy's a legend in the music industry. I will never say a bad word about him. But reflecting now, I I hope that he would look back in that time and go, you know, I, I stand by what I said. You know, he was right. He was absolutely probably right. But maybe I could have waited until the show was over to do that. And I think we would both agree on, you know, I would agree with his views and I think hopefully he would agree with what I'm saying too. You said that Pete was
3: right, that you didn't make it in this business wrong. You are 20 years on making a documentary that's going to go out on Christmas Day, reflecting back on your time. You have your one woman show, you have your radio show, um, you've released countless records. And you are still doing this as a living. And that, my friend, is success in this business. So don't you ever, ever destroy <laughs> your own narrative.
2: I know. I, I love you for saying that. And I, and you're right. I think what I meant was I was never going to have that music career. You know, that I was never going to have album after album after album. And it just wasn't the right time for me. And that was just, that was a fact, like, I wouldn't change the time. It was right for me in every other respect. It just wasn't the right time. I just don't think folk were ready for someone who looked like me at that point to be anywhere near successful and I do look at women and I, I hate to you know mention Adele and Lizzo because again I'm mentioning them because of their their weight and I don't want to I know, do that sorry, but I'm the
3: same, no no yeah.
2: no no I know but I know exactly why you're doing it but what I'm saying is thank god we're in a world now where you can be whoever you want to be and you can shine and you you can absolutely have a career you know, in music and you can be selling out to millions of people, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in stadiums and all the rest of these women do. You know, Adele's a residency in Las Vegas every single week, can't get a ticket for Love No Money. She's like, tell me a bigger star. She's won Oscars and Grammys and you name it, she's done it. Liz was the same. So I think, thank goodness we're at a point now where this is like such a distant memory, you know, it's like it would never, ever happen. And, I think it would have been easier for me to take Kate if folk were like, she's just not that good a singer. But I think everyone was quite agreed that, yes, she's got a nice voice. She can definitely sing. It was just, I was, I was never going to make it because of, I just wasn't, it was, I didn't present myself in a way that was acceptable to the industry in terms of selling merchandise and, you know, everything else that needed to go along with just being a singer. Being a singer wasn't enough at that point. And that's just the way it was.
3: How did all of this impact your mental health?
2: Oh, I mean, I think only now and having been into therapy really recently, like in the last couple of years. I went into therapy a couple of years ago because after I had my first wee baby, I was like, oh, my God, something's going to happen to me or something's going to happen to my baby. And I was in lockdown and I thought, I'm maybe going to speak to someone. And when I spoke to the therapist, she said, your fear's not about losing your baby. Your fear is that you don't feel you deserve your baby because of everything, that, the narrative that was driven home for such a long time, that you don't deserve to win, you don't deserve to be... And it really kind of made me then go back and address it. And I think only now I realise as an adult that it did affect my mental health. And again, mental health wasn't something we spoke about in 2003. You know, no. I, think, I think honestly in 2003, I think if I had tried to speak about it, what, a lot of what I was getting back was, why are you moaning? You're famous. Why are you moaning? You know, you shouldn't be moaning.
3: Or, or if you don't like it, lose weight.
2: Yeah, if you or if you don't like it, lose weight. And I did lose the weight. I went, which is exactly what I did. So not long after I won, I went and did Gillian McKeith. You are what you eat. What an experience that was, by the way.
3: So let's just point out, right? You you released a single the night that you released your first single. It went straight in at number one. It was huge. Yeah, it was called All This Time.
2: Yeah, it was number one for three or four weeks or something in January. But now,
3: and then the second single didn't enter at number one. And then suddenly they're going, oh,
2: no, this it's, it's... isn't
3: working. So so there's no chance to sort of recalibrate, rebuild resuscitate um you know or there was nobody sat there going but hang on a second this this woman has picked up you know millions of votes there's millions of people out there that bothered to vote for us so there's millions of people that have probably got an appetite to listen to us sing. we need to go again right? nobody did that why no. not
2: oh god so what it was the way it was presented to me was is that the single came out and it went straight to number one it was number one for three or four weeks and You know, it was like, I made it into the Guinness Book of World Records because I was the first Scottish female to ever debut at number one. In fact, there was an episode of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Lulu was furious. Oh, I mean, I love, I mean, Queen Lulu. I love Lulu, right? I've met her since, oh my God. But there was a question on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and the poor guy lost 16 grand because it was like, which Scottish female debuted at number one? You know, was it Charlize Viteria, Lulu, Annie Lennox or Michelle McManus? And he took a 50-50 on it. It was between me and Lulu. And of course you're going to think it was Lulu, but Lulu's first single didn't go to number one. It was her second or third single, Uh but it was my first single. Anyway, so the, the single did really, really well. And then there was, my album was a lot of ballads, but there was one fast song on the album. And I had begged them to let me, please let me do that as my second single. And they said, no, 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 no. It's going to be The Meaning of Love. And it was another ballad. Little did I know they'd given that song to one of the American Idol winners, or runners up and she released it six months after I had recorded it. It was one of those things. And uh, I didn't know that at the time and I was devastated. And I remember the album did really well. I think the album went to like number two yeah. or something like that, it, but it came out in Brit Week. So I was kind of lost in that. And then the second single came out and I remember getting my, my call sheet for the week and I had one appearance on Des and Mail on a Wednesday, which was a great programme, but there was no other promo. And I remember saying, should we not be doing other things for this second single? Because the first single had been promoted to death, like up and down country. And he said, no, no, one appearance will be enough. And then the midweeks came out, and it was number 13 in the midweeks. And they were like, oh, well, it was great while it lasted, but, you know, that's it over now with the music. And I was like, sorry, we've got a whole album. And and, Kate, I was like, don't worry, we're going to find something else for you to do. Don't you worry, we'll, we'll give you a wee call. And I literally left 19 offices that day and I was like, I said, but we've got. it's only Wednesday. We've got till Sunday until the, are we not going to try and push it? No, usually where you are in the midweeks is where you'll stay. It was all this. And I was like, okay. And I thought, oh, they must have another plan for me. And that was the end of the music career right there, right then. And then a couple of months later, I got a letter saying you've been dropped by Sony BMG and... And my, my magic company said, "Look, what would you like to do? Would you, you know, like to be a TV presenter? Would you like to lose weight? Would you like to be a radio presenter? Would you like to lose weight? Would you?" And it was this all kept coming back to this weight loss thing. And I was like, "Okay, I'll, I'll lose the weight if you think that will make people love me, and I'll, I'll get my music career back." Then yeah, and I lost ten stone with Gillian McKeith, and it didn't make a blind stone. bit of difference. Ten stone with ten stone in ten months because I wanted to sing. Is that even I drove, healthy? Well. I was all very healthy food and all that. I just I had a lot of weight to lose and I'd never tried to diet like that before, so it just kind of fell off me. But um, it made no difference. I didn't get a record deal. They still weren't interested. Even though I'd, I called their bluff and went and lost all the weight and the record company were like, nah, it's gone. It's done.
3: And that was it. And it was done. You must have been broken by that decision.
2: Oh, I didn't know how to tell mum and dad because they were so proud of me and it happened so quick. So I went in 2000, end of 2003, 2004, we spent... Um, you know, first half, great, doing the single on the album. And then the second half of 2004, just plodding about London, going out for drinks with you and just trying to keep keep going. And then 2005 came and I lost the weight with Gillian McKee and all the rest of it. And then by 2006, it was, it was over. I mean, it had been over way before that, but it was really over. And I remember going to see my lawyer, because that's the only person I knew in the industry that would talk to me at the time, was my lawyer, lovely Anne Harrison. I don't know what I'd have done without her. And I went to see Anne and Anne just said, Look, I'm getting you out of this contract. You're not staying, you know, you're not staying your management company. And I was all but out of it anyway. She said, but I'm gonna legally get you out of it. And I said, But where do I go, Anne? What do I do? And she went, I'm gonna introduce you to someone. And she introduced me. She went, Go for lunch here. You're meeting this man called Alan. Just go and see him. And I went and I met Alan and Mark Wogan, who ran Joger Management Company at the time, and they had all the boys from Radio 2. So they had Ken Bruce, Steve Wright, all the rest, but they had no females on their books at that point. And a lovely woman called Alison Sloan, who came from Sanctuary Records, and Alison's still my manager to this day. And the boys just met me and they said, just come with us, whatever you want to be, you're going to be with us. And I said, I don't want to do music anymore, and I just don't think it's going to work. And they said, are you sure? You know, you're a great singer. And I said, no, no. And they had great connections at the BBC because they were Wogans and stuff like that, and they just were so well connected. Yeah, Alan's so gorgeous. He looked like Colin Firth. It was like a real life Mister Darcy. I could barely speak during the lunch. I was like, <laughs> "Are you real? <Vio>? Because you're so gorgeous, which doesn't doesn't bode well. When he's going to be your manager. Ali and I still laugh about it to this day. He was honestly, go- he's one of the most gorgeous men I've ever seen in my life. And they just took me on, Kate, and they changed everything. They changed everything for me and they helped me carve out this lovely career that I have now and it all starts with them.
3: Well, actually, it all starts with you and it starts with the fact that I would have sat there in in Alan and Mark's shoes and gone, hang on a minute, like I've just said to you, millions of people voted for this woman because they had access to her on a weekly basis and they fell in love with her. So that is proven. What do we do to build on that? Mm-hmm. And that's where I would have gone. And I'm guessing that's kind of what they did.
2: Oh, I mean, I started off doing the Eurovision results. I was doing from High from Scotland and all that kind of stuff when they were doing the kind of heats and things. They got me straight in the BBC Scotland. I then got the job at STV, which is ITV in Scotland, hosting their version of the one show that ran for four years at five o'clock called The Hour. It was wildly successful we had Brian May we gave Ed Sheeran his very first TV appearance and he gave me a shout out at Hamden a couple of years ago and he said Scotland mm-hmm. Michelle McManus and it wasn't me it was the show but you know the show was hugely successful in Scotland all the big names that were coming up to perform here came on our show on our sofa Um, and then after that when the show kind of ended I then thought you know I, I, I've got a, an amazing comedy writer called Bruce Devlin up here he's one of the top compares and he said let's do a one woman show because you know, you're quite funny and you're quite up for taking the piss out yourself. And we devised this idea of this woman that had had 15 minutes of fame and it was up and she didn't know it was up and she still thought she was mixing all these, you know, really famous people like Beyoncé. But actually she was opening her local Lidl on a Saturday, you know, that was cutting the red ribbon. So we came... I mean, what was born from that was this kind of comedy cabaret, kind of like me thinking I was Liza Minnelli, you know, like on stage with these people like... And, and it went down a storm, and we ended up selling out the festival for seven years. And then that transferred to TV, and we were doing TV specials with me. And then I get to sing for the Pope and for the Queen's Jubilee, and I opened up the Commonwealth, we hosted the Commonwealth Games up here. It just all starts right. to go bang, 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 just bang, just bang, bang, Let me just unpick that,
3: right? That's not you in the show, in, in your fantasy, like you're, the, the sort of alter ego you're playing. You actually sang for the Pope. You actually sang for the Queen. You, Michelle McManus, not... Michelle McManus the Edinburgh Fringe play Michelle McManus right so when you talk about that your career in music didn't work I'm gonna really hold a mirror up to you now and say really how's that not not working when you sing for the Queen and the Pope many years after you've been voted the winner
2: I know, and you're right. It's only it's only now in my life where I'm getting a chance to hold that mirror up and look back. I think it's just because in the very traditional sense of having album deals and all this kind of stuff, that part didn't work for me. it's that very that kind of traditional recording artist part didn't work for me? But you're right. I, all these lovely, and I have to also mention the LGBTIQ plus community because in between all of this happening, this community literally just opens its arms up and goes, "You come to us." And I start performing at all these major kind of gay venues up and down the country and pride events manchester pride i meet rylan at manchester pride in 2013 and that then begins a friendship there and you know i'm Kalisa's on the same stage and all these kind of people and i end up doing mighty hoopla in london last year of thirty thousand people because of that community you know and they were just like listen see if no one else wants you you better just come along here with us because we love you and we accept you whatever you look like whatever you are you you know you can be an honorary member of that community and that has never left me that amazing community like I don't know where I would be without you know without the LGBTIQ plus community and that sister so all these lovely things start happening till I get to this point now you know where I'm like twenty years down the line and I can look back now through completely different eyes and I can maybe give I can maybe be proud of myself Kate which I wasn't for a long time because for a, such a long time I just was there was a lot of shame attached to it as well because I thought. I did this I let myself down I didn't I didn't get the record deals and people didn't people didn't want to hear from me because it's all my fault because I wasn't good looking enough and I wasn't thin enough and I wasn't attractive enough because that's what you're told so therefore that's just what you believe and only now I think with this documentary and taking this time and speaking to you and hearing your how your what your view was at that time only now can I look back and go you know, Michelle, you did good and it did work out okay and you have a lovely life as a result. And I know that and I'm really happy with it.
3: If I'd have gone and touched her on the shoulder in that queue 20 years ago and said, listen, this is what's going to happen. Take it or leave it, right? You're going to win. It's going to get bumpy afterwards. There's going to be a lot of self-reinvention, but you'll never go and do a nine to five. You'll never get out of bed and go, oh, I don't want to go to work today. You're always going to be able to do something you love that challenges you. You're going to meet extraordinary people. Hey, you might even sing for the Pope and the Queen. What do you reckon? Would you have signed on the dotted line?
2: Oh, I'd have to with both hands. Thank and then some of course I would have and this, and this is why I'm incredibly grateful I'm really grateful. sorry about
3: the shit bit in the middle I mean I think oh it wasn't
2: your fault I think that yeah but you
3: you did have a bit of a shit sandwich babe I did and I looking the back the bit in the middle now, was terrible
2: but you know isn't it lovely that nobody else will really need to go through that I don't think you know that, I'm, and by me loads of people went through it before me it just wasn't publicly on telly you know people trying to get in the record business with who looked like me or you know sounded like me or whatever so but I think the positive always outweighs the the negative in that situation, and I do look back in my life now. And you're right, I am so lucky that I can provide for my family in the way that I do, and I get given the opportunities that I do. And, you know, I'm producing on this documentary now. You know, I'm not just, I'm not. It's not. Uh, you know, I'm getting credits on there. I'm. I've just written. We've got a new song coming out on Friday that I've written. You know, I'm writing for other people, and I'm at the table making decisions now, as opposed to just like just you go home and we'll phone you if we if we've got any news for you. And even that, you know, you know how empowering that is as a woman in our industry. It's. I feel very proud that I'm in that position. Oh, I'm so proud of you. Thank you. I am. Look at know, you! Don't, you're, you're going to start me crying again. You're you're wild. You've you've got a little button you can press. You just say things and I just start crying. You know, I do look back. I, I know I'm. I hope I'm not being too negative. I do look back really no. only positively, positively on the whole thing. I
3: think you've been in, entirely positive, but I, I want to end on a high, and I want to talk to you before I let you go about the woman that you are today because so much has changed. Let me pick up with Michelle McManus, 2023, mother of two, wife of Jeff. How did that happen? And oh. and and today, how are you? Are you good in yourself?
2: Do you know, Kate, okay, I sometimes get scared to say it out loud, but I'm so freaking happy, man. I am, like, good. I'm so content. I think content's the word I always come back to when I'm trying to sum up my life. Like, everything I need are in these four walls. Do you know what I mean, I've got my husband and... I adore him, I wasted a long time to meet Jeff I was 35, you know, I didn't really date anyone before Jeff and I never really thought I was going to meet anyone like Jeff but he is, you know, marriage is hard of course it's hard, you know, I'm not going to pretend Especially to sit here and go yeah, of course it is, it will, nothing will test you you know, like having two small children under three but I feel like he's my running mate man, I feel like he's my partner in crime and like, I believe every word that comes out of his mouth and I trust him and I think he, you know, he just does, he gets me. He just does, every, he's not in the industry. He's a, he's a mechanical engineer and he just, I don't know, We're in the, we won't, I think we're on the same page, which is really difficult sometimes to be on the same page God, as someone. Yeah. I mean, I can't predict the future, right? I can just tell you what's happening right now. Even though it is hard going and sometimes we're like passing ships in the night, you know, with these kids, we always find a way back to each other. And I think I just feel like, I never need to take. I never need. We're both on the same page. If, I, I'm not being very articulate, but he's just—he is my total teammate in this. And I love. I mean, I love him. But he's my. I couldn't do it without him. We are fifty-fifty in it, and I think that I needed that. Not everyone needs that, but I needed that. I needed that in a person, and I got that in him.
3: Where where was Jeff hiding all these years?
2: Well, you know we're, we're white wines in the title, so it's like of course there was booze involved because <laughs> I had a uh, so I it was it was two thousand and fifteen, right? So I had been down in London because I was doing kudos at the time. The panto up here, and there's a big massive panto in uh, the Armadillo. It's like a three and a half thousand seater, and I was playing the mermaid and Peter Pan, and David Hasselhoff was Captain Hook, how right? And is the crankies. oh, how random! I- and the crankies who are out of this world.
3: You were a mermaid with. The Crankies and David Hasselhoff. This is the sort of conversation I normally only have with Denise Welsh. This is how random her life is.
2: Yeah, I'd hit my panto ceiling at this point. I was never going to get any better than this than doing the panto with the Crankies and David Hasselhoff. So I was down in London getting fitted for my mermaid costume and my lovely pal Kat Harvey, who presents on Greatest Hits in Scotland here on The Breakfast. Yeah, so Kat,
3: from, hit, from Kat and Ewan.
2: Yeah, from Cat and Ewan, right? She she loves you, but she... um. Cat phoned me and she's like what a riot she is right she is. She was my drinking buddy and then some so Scotland the national team were playing Germany and of course we were going to get beat because Scotland at that point were always getting beat and she said let's just preempt the situation we're going to get gubbed at football so I'm going to want to commiserate and have a couple of drinks and I live near the national stadium she's over in the west end of the city she said I'm going to meet you after the game I said no can't I'm in London my train doesn't even get into half past eight at night I'm working in Sunderland of all places tomorrow we're filming I can't come out." Anyway, I went out, went to the pub under <laughs> uh, under duress, right? My first drink was a double Jack Daniels and I changed. Co- I know I can't. But, I'm on
3: live television tomorrow. Just the one, then.
2: <laughs> just the, yeah, but my first drink was a double Jack Daniels and Diet Coke. Because I'm book a shot, right? So that was like oh. the first drink. because Cat's nuts, right? So I meet Cat and we're in the pub and then these two guys come in. It's rammed in this pub because it's so close to the the, the stadium. It's full of football fans. And this these two guys come in and there was a wee seat beside us. So they said, oh, look, can we sit down? And they sat down and one was Jeff. And I had went to the bar or something to get a drink, obviously, because I'd, you know, had only had one two minutes before it. So I went to the bar and Jeff had said to Kat, is, is that Michelle McManus? And Kat said, yes, yes, it is, uh-huh. And he said, you know, I, I really love her. I think she's amazing. He said, I've met her a couple of times. She won't remember. He said, but... um. Do you think you know? You know, can I talk to her, kind of thing? And Kat's like, "Well, what are your intentions? Where are you from? You know, just giving them the third degree." Anyway, so Cat said, "Look, this guy wants a picture with you," and I said, "Yeah, yeah." So Jeff sat beside me, we took a picture, and I still have that picture in a frame because we did not know each other, and that was the moment that we both met. And after that, he was just he just really made me laugh, Kate, and he actually. You know, I could barely get a man to buy me a kebab on the way up the road at that point, never mind wanting to actually, like, date me or, like, ask for my number. And he just, he said, look, I want to take you for dinner. And I was like, really? And I said to Kat, I said, he's really gorgeous. I'd really like him. And Kat said, well, look, you know, let's let's go have a couple of drinks with him. And and we did. And he texts the next day when I was going to Sunderland and he texts the day after and it just happened. And I was 35 at that point and I genuinely never thought I was going to meet anyone. I just had resigned myself to the fact that Like it's not going to happen for me, and then I met Jeff, and it literally went bang. Like we were living together after six months, we were engaged after like eight months, married after two years, and then we had these two beautiful babies, and we bought our house. And eight years down the line, you know, here we are, and you know, I'm like, what if I had never went to that pub that night? What if I'd never. What if Cat hadn't dragged me, out, lured me out with the promise of veg pakora, which is like a, the veg pakora up here is like amazing. It's like the tastiest thing ever. You know, in that little white polystyrene container when you've had one too many sherries and trying to eat your pakora. But um, what if I hadn't went out? And he said the same. He wasn't supposed to come out that night. And mates like, let's just go for one pint. And it kind of gives me wee shivers when I think, you know, yeah. what if we hadn't met? Because yeah. I'd spent such a lot. I spent from winning Pop Idol to meeting him those that 15 years no boy didn't have a boyfriend I dated folk but it never came to anything never had a significant other so I never had that love even to lose I never had it
3: well then, that's man. because you had you just had to bide your time because there it was in an abundance the moment will go on to capture your heart and create two beautiful little boys with you I know, um, and you've got the family that you kind of grew up with now
2: I do. I am in a place in my life right now that I'm like, this is the moment I want to remember. These are the moments I want to remember because I, I know I will look back in this period of my life, whatever is to come, and I will... This is the place i want to return to in my memory. I know I will. That's how I feel about it. I'm
3: so glad that you're happy. You yeah. deserve it. You're Thank one of you. the nicest, sharpest, funniest, most talented, resilient women I've ever ever met honestly you are Michelle and um, I wish you nothing but this times 10 going forward in life and I hope that you don't have to bite down on another shit sandwich <laughs> no
2: never ever ever again it will never happen no shit on the menu for moi <laughs> but it, it's, it, it got me to where I am today I suppose I think that's a thing mm. and, and, and hopefully it helped others not to go through it I think as well totally
3: Oh, it's been so nice picking up with you I wish Scotland wasn't so far away, but next time I'm up shooting, so coming to squeeze those kids.
2: I was going to say, you know, you've got a place to come. Yeah. Exactly, you've got a place to come here in Scotland any time.
3: How lovely was that? And Michelle's documentary, Michelle McManus, after all this time, is out on the BBC at Christmas. It may even be airing on Christmas night. We're just waiting for the schedules to be firmed up, but fear not, you can always catch up with it on iPlayer. And for more chat with Talent Show Legends, we have episodes with Libby Walsh, Danny Mano, Craig Revel Horwood, Arlene Phillips, that's Dame Arlene Phillips to you and I, Shirley Ballas, Nikki Chapman and Amanda Holden in our back catalog. In the meantime, I'll be back on Friday with a brand new guest. Until then, thanks for listening.
1: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat